I am going to tell you about what happened in the gym. Because I'm, I'm looking for one of my par, paramita sheets. Does everybody have one of these? There are new people today, so they can't everybody possibly have one. I have more of them left over. And here. I just need one. So you can give these to all of the new people. This is a list of the 10 uh, qualities of the heart that the Buddha is said to have cultivated. They're coming around. Come and get one. Make yourself visible. There you go. Put your hand up if you need one. These are the, the it's a chart. Uh, you can find this very chart in a book called uh, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, written by me. Um, yeah, let's see where the charts are. This one. Have we got another chart? If we run out, we'll make you more. It's a, it's a period, I have one, one more. No, I don't, yes I do. Oh, here, here comes Marty with, okay, go make some more. They're coming, 20 more, because we have one more week. So we've been talking about these. These are the, the you know, uh, I, mean, I won't forget the woman in the gym, but just to put this in a context, uh, the Buddha taught uh, in, uh, he was, what, what do they say, five, 5780, I think, is his, the, the before the common era, I think, is when he's either born or died. But he lived 80 years, and uh, his teachings were all word-of-mouth teachings. They were written down for the first time between two and 300 years later. They were written down in Sri Lanka, and the earliest texts are in Pali, which is a language that the Buddha didn't speak. Uh, but got, they got translated over and over. But because it was for at least 200 years an oral tradition, uh, m m many, uh, many of the, the uh, sermons in the, in, the, in the canon begin, thus I have heard, and then they go on, because somebody said it to them, said it to them, said it to them. And there are many, many lists, the five this, the six that, the seven that. And I think because uh, as a mnemonic device for people who are learning things by heart to say them over and over again, it may, it's helpful to put them in a list. So sometimes lists overlap and the five spiritual powers will be the same as will show up in different lists. The one or another will show up in the seven factors of enlightenment. In this particular list, which is the, the 10 uh, qualities of the heart, that, in legend at least, the Buddha is said to have perfected in previous lifetimes before his lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama, the lifetime in which he presumably had his full awakening to understanding. The person that we call the Buddha now, which means the person who woke up, the awakened one. So that, in that last sentence, I said a lot of at known as and the legend has because uh, really, it's for me, it's the same if it actually happened in that legendary mythical way or didn't. I actually like myth, so I like the idea that you have, that it was necessary to perfect these characteristics of the heart to have a mind so at ease that you could have a full understanding of how things are. 
without even thinking of, do I, does it resonate with me prior lifetimes or prior lifetimes in non-human realms? I don't know. It's not the culture that I grew up in. It's not the world culture now. So, but it's, it's, not, it's not relevant to me if it's true or not true in the literal sense. What's relevant to me is the wisdom that's in these particular virtues. What's relevant to me is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is the heart of the Buddha's path. And I also, I've been thinking as we've been reviewing these paramitas in these last few weeks, these, these 10, I've been thinking, I have been saying all these years that all of these are things that need to be perfected first so that real wisdom can flourish. I've been changing it around to thinking maybe when real wisdom predominates, these characteristics flourish. We really understand how difficult life is for everyone. We become kinder in all its permutations. So that so today we're going to talk about wisdom. We've been talking about different permutations, which now I tell you the story about the woman in the gym yesterday. There's a woman in the gym that I've been watching, going through her routine on her whatever she's doing, as I'm doing my routine, who. Uh, whose hair is very short, as is mine, except that her hair looks like it's growing in from no hair. Um, I've been watching her over a couple of weeks and significantly a little bit more and was very, very close and she had a turban on to begin with. And we ended up in the locker room yesterday drying off from showers next to each other. So uh, I said something to her like, um, I guess your hair is growing in now. And uh, she said, yeah, it is. She said it was supposed to be uh, curly, but I don't know yet. It's not long enough to be curly. People say it grows in curly. So I said, uh, no, it doesn't grow in curly. <laughs> How many people here have the experience of hair growing in following chemotherapy? So she said, I said, so how long have you been finished with the chemo? You feel better now that you're off the chemo? She said, yeah, I really do. She said, but you know, after the chemo, I had radiation, and that was hard also. But now I'm finished with all of it. I said, I hope you say well. She said, so do I. I think I will. She said, is yours growing in, or did you do that? <laughs> you know, because I had actually just had a haircut the, the, just before. I said, no, no, I did this purposely. I'm, she said, good, you're really lucky. And I thought to myself, a transmission of wisdom I couldn't have a more significant trans transmission of wisdom. If I read a Dharma book, that's a you're tremendously lucky. I am, you know, because you don't know. You don't know if it's your time or not your time or what's going to be your thing. When we go through and we say, I'm thinking about my, my next-door neighbor or my father or my mother or my grandchild or whatever, everything it's just by the, by the luck at the last minute. You know, we take a lot of pains to do things right, but you never know, really. In the same day that I heard that uh, this eight-and-a-half-pound baby is born safely, everybody waiting, 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 I hear about somebody else whose uh, uh, husband in his early 60s was killed in an accident quite suddenly, went out of the house, 
really well and with every in good shape. They had every intention of living together healthy and well for a long time. So pe friends of people I know, so not people I know directly. But I thought to myself, you know, when you go out in the morning, you never know until you come home. But if you lived like thinking, I, I think we, we walk on a tightrope between, <gasps> look what could happen, or uh, I won't go out, or I'll live my life, but I'll be reasonably careful, but you never know what could happen. You never know at all. And, uh, and, that, and really, that wisdom, you never know, makes today the most precious. So that the, this present moment is the only one I can count on, really, to be here and alive and, and to really enjoy and to say, wow, I'm alive. I wanted to start with that because I, I got a book in the mail. Um, I've been reading a book, actually, and enjoying it. I just wanted to tell you about it tangentially. It's uh, Michael Krasny. I, after I was on a panel with him last week, I uh, read his first book called Off Mike, which is uh, his uh, uh, all the, his his presentation of oh, I don't know fifty people that he's interviewed and, and, and over the years. And he's a good writer, and mostly uh, I'm impressed with how uh, forthcoming he is about his own life and what impressed him and how hard he tried from early adulthood to be a good person. That if you're looking for the answer to the question, how do you get to be a good person? And, and quoting all kinds of people who said, how, how is this first page? I saved it for you. That a good person, Saul Bellow, who we thought was the best writer ever, said a good person was a person who was, had the social conscience and a kind heart. And that social conscience and a kind heart gave meaning to an otherwise chaotic life. I was thinking about the chaotic life, like you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, uh, this, this book, which is a current bestseller, says... Uh, shows how history and landscape and accidents of birth and death conspire to create the story of a single life. You, know, you don't know what's going to happen the next minute. This actually is a great book called Cutting for Stone. The, do you, how many people have read it? It's fabulous, isn't it? It's fabulous, riveting, riveting. Uh, it's, it's not... Um, Marty, you know, I'll give it to you for a present. You know? <laughs> You looked, like, you looked like you were about to write down yeah, the name I was of it. About to <laughs> My friend Jack Cornfield said, if you ever have something, or if you have something and somebody looks like they might want it, and you have the impulse to give it to them, you should do it. So, oh, you love it. You love it. Uh, this is a book called uh, uh, Dharma Road. Uh, and I loved it. I, I, I have the good fortune of being sent a lot of books to say something about. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's complicated because if they're by my friends, I always read them and try to say something good about them. Uh, and I, a lot of times I don't have a chance to, I don't have time to read a lot of books. And I didn't know this person, but I read one bit of it and then I read the whole thing in one gulp and loved it and wrote about that. And it's uh, written by a man, it's written by Brian Haycock. 
and it's called Dharma Road, and it's probably not in our bookstore yet, but get it on Amazon. But it's a it's written with um, where we talk about different paths to wisdom. You can have the path of um, metta. You can have the path of mindfulness. You can have the path of uh, uh, sila of uh, virtue development. This is, this fellow is writing about the the path of taxi driving, and uh, so I want to read you one particular. Um, Cab driving is like, this is called get a grip. Because sometimes when I, I think, that I, when, uh, when, I, when I see situations where something's going on, I think everybody could do better here. Like there's a fracas in the, in the dry cleaning store because the dry cleaning didn't come and the person who came to pick it up is getting mad about it and they're having words in the front of other people who are getting upset. And I'm thinking to myself, get a grip, you know? The fracas is not going to cause the clothes to show up. It's going to make the, the person there upset, makes everybody else upset. And we don't let our own feelings run away with us, so get a grip. My own children have said to me more than once when I'm misbehaving, <laughs> get a grip. You never finish making mistakes. You never finish. Never finish. <laughs> Cab driving is like an episode of The Simpsons. You're watching Homer wrapping Nell Flanders' house in toilet paper to get even for something, and you go to the kitchen to get a beer or a nice cup of herbal tea. When you come back, Homer is in a space bubble orbiting the moon, and you wonder, what happened? How did he get there? Sometimes it's like a case of bipolar disorder. You're cruising raking in the fares one moment, then it all goes bad for a while, up and down, all day long. Most of the passengers are nice, regular people. Some of them are toxic jerks. <laughs> sometimes the traffic just flows along. Sometimes it clogs up and dies. When things are going well, you know it can't last. When it comes apart, you know it can't last either. It's a life of constant change. The Buddha would have said, Anicca, things are always changing. So this guy... All you, need, all you can do is try to keep yourself on an even keel while it goes by. It's pretty much like everything else in this life. It's a Friday morning around 10. I'm out a little early today working downtown thinking I'm going to push it a little, make a real day of it. I've been slacking off lately, but no more. Today I'm a samurai cab driver, a real road warrior. I will not be denied. I pull up at the Four Seasons, load three women going out to the Highland Mall for some shopping, then load two men at the Red Lion, take them to the Delhi headquarters, Dell headquarters. Then take a call out at Seton Northwest Hospital, take a patient home on a voucher headed further north. Now I'm about 20 minute miles from downtown and five minutes later, I get a call at Lakeline Mall. Two men with suitcases get in as they were going to the Hyatt. That's downtown. This is how cab driving is supposed to be. <laughs> Straightforward, drop someone off, pick someone else up. Every trip the meter gets turning over. Gets the meter turning over. None of these just down the block rides. No sitting outside of 7-Eleven waiting for something to happen. I know it's not gonna last, it never does. I pull up at a red light on Research Boulevard, look around on an empty lot, a half block away, there's a billboard for a pharmaceutical testing company soliciting test subjects. It reads, have you been diagnosed with schizophrenia? Sitting at the light, I look up at the sign and think, not yet. 
When I drop the men off at the Hyatt, there are four cabs lined up in the lot waiting. I feel I'll ride around, check the cab stands. I wave to the drivers, head for the exit. Then it all goes bad. As soon as I pull out of the Hyatt, an Austin police cruiser appears in the rearview mirror. His light bars come on, strobing like mad. I'm doing about five, so I know I'm not speeding. I haven't cut anyone off. I've only gone 50 feet down Barton Springs Road, so he can't be pulling me over for something I did in the Hyatt parking lot. At least, I don't think he can. I'm really not sure. I think, irrationally, maybe he just wants to get by. Oh, yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> I pull off into a parking lot, and he comes in behind me. He walks up, looks at my driver's license, my hack license, cab registration, playing it up a little, looking like he's suspicious. He studies the insurance form taped to the windshield. He's a young guy with real dark, shiny shades. The police posture. He hands the paper back. Sir, he says in a police voice, polite but not planning on a discussion, were you aware that you were not wearing your seatbelt? My seatbelt? I think fast, as fast as I can under the circumstances. I'm a little rattled. Was I what? Suddenly, I don't feel that smart. Well, I just dropped a couple of guys off back there, and I... I hadn't put it back on. I was going to. So you had to get out of the car. That was why your belt was off? I'm trying to think fast. He might have seen me at the Hyatt, so he knows if I lie about it. Or maybe not. In these situations, lying is almost automatic. Everyone lies to Catholic traffic cops. He knows that. He's been listening to lame excuses all morning. Mine isn't going any better than anyone else's. Of course, now there's another problem. I've spent so much time thinking about a simple yes or no question that anything I say will sound like a lie. <laughs> Besides, aren't Buddhists supposed to tell the truth? Isn't that what right speech is all about? No, I didn't get out of the car. I just turned around and talked to them for a few seconds, had the seatbelt off. I guess it slipped my mind after that, which is close enough to the truth. Really, I haven't used a seatbelt since driver's ed. <laughs> Sir, <laughs> sir, did you know that you are 50% more likely to survive an accident when you're wearing a seatbelt? I know that, yeah. Well, not the 50%, but I know I should wear the belt. I'll try to do better. I give him a hopeful look, but already he has his ticket book open and pen going. Does this go on my driving record, I ask weekly. I don't think I can stand another session of comedy defensive driving school <laughs> to clear another ticket. It isn't that funny the third or fourth time around. No, sir, this isn't a moving violation. It won't go on your record. He shows me the ticket, points out the address of the municipal court, which is really not necessary, me being a cab driver and all. Tells me I have three weeks to pay it. Then I ask him the other big question, how much is this going to cost me? I don't know how much these tickets are. I just write them. Per personally, I'd rather be out catching criminals, but this is my assignment for the day, so I'm doing it. Remember, seatbelts save lives. He smiles down at me, turns away, looks over his shoulder. Have a nice day, he adds. Maybe he's being sarcastic. I can't tell. Sitting in a lot, staring at the ticket, I feel like I've been slammed by the incredible hunk. My mind is racing. This is the remains of the samurai cab driver, gutted and sliced, <laughs> left lying in the sun for the vultures to feed on. I have been denied. I am now the man without the plan, the rebel without a clue. This cop is spending his day writing up seatbelt tickets, and he doesn't know how much tickets cost. Give me a break. <laughs> any reasonable amount, he just tell me. This is going to be bad. My big weekend is already wiped out. I'll have to hustle until Monday 
just to cover the ticket, taking on the world my ass. It's not even noon, and the world already has my ass in a jar. I'm crushed. It takes me five minutes just to get out of the lot and back on the road. Finally, I head for the Four Seasons and park in the stand behind four other cabs, things suddenly looking bleak all around. A horse-drawn carriage pulls up next to me. The horse stops and takes a dump on the pavement. <laughs> then he twists his head around and laughs at me. Okay, maybe he's not laughing. Maybe it's more like a whinny. But from where I'm sitting, he's laughing at me, and I don't like it. I'd wring his neck, but he's pretty big. <laughs> he starts walking again. I get out of the cab and sit on the stone bench thinking about the money I've just wasted, wondering what the hell I'm doing out here, thinking I might as well go and sit at the airport wait for something to happen out there, or take up a less stressful line of work. Cab drivers have known to just walk away from their cabs, leave the keys in and the motor running, and go home, never come back. <laughs> I know the feeling. I know you're thinking, this guy's a Zen Buddhist. He's meditating, developing a wider view of the world, getting it all in perspective. You're thinking, I'm a half step away from a ride in a nut wagon. That's cab driving. If you want to calm down, and learn to live a more peaceful life, try cab driving. If you can keep your mind out there, you'll be fine. If I were living any normal life, I'd be the serene messenger of peace from the planet of bliss, the calm center of the storm, Mr. Composure. But I'm not living a normal life. I'm a cab driver. I'm a little on edge most of the time. I take a few cleansing breaths, deep ones. I ask myself, what would the Buddha do? Well, probably he wouldn't let him get stuck. Wouldn't let himself get stuck in such a dead-end, piss-pot way to make a living. <laughs> I keep trying. What would the Buddha do? He'd probably know enough to wear a seatbelt. That's what he'd do. After a while, I think of a cliche. When life gives you lemon, make lemon meringue, meringue pie. Well, something like that. Every cloud has a silver lining. I'm disgusted. I wasn't always like this. All this mindfulness and meditation practice, and I'm coming up with ideas that belong on tacky wall posters. Then I have a thought. I can feel a little shift in my point of view. I can suddenly taste some of the meringue, see a little sliver in the overcast, silver in the overcast. There's something in this that might help if I let it. Here I am doing truck driving 200 miles a day in city traffic, going out on the interstate with big rigs, surrounded by some of the worst excuses for amateur drivers on the planet, most of the time, I'm stressed out in a hurry, and the fact is, I've never used my seatbelt. Even pulling out a lot after staring at the seatbelt ticket for five minutes, I hadn't strapped in. I've never been in an accident in my entire life, but if I'm going to drive a cab, the odds are stacked high against me. And like the man said, seatbelts do save lives. Maybe I could save mine. Now I'm feeling better. I'm at $100 or more. Turned out to be 150, but I have a new plan. From now on, I'll wear a seatbelt all the time, and someday, for that money, I'll save my own life. Is that a good story? Dharma. What's the author's name? The author's name is Brian Haycock. Will you promise to bring it back next week? Uh, this one I want back. I will. Okay. <laughs> I promise. Thank you. Okay. One, you want one more story? The stories are good. I, it, I, 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 uh, I could have, re I was going to say I couldn't resist. I could resist, but I didn't. Because I, I hadn't read this story in a long time. And I've been reading, I reread the Paramita book I wrote 10 years ago. 
because I wanted to read the wisdom chapter, and it turned out to be a cab driver in the wisdom chapter. So I thought, well, here's another cab driver story. One of the cab driver story. On a midwinter Sunday, I stepped out of the apartment building in which I was staying in Upper Manhattan and thought that everyone in New York must be watching the Giants-Vikings playoff game on TV. The streets were empty, and the first taxi that came along stopped for me. The driver was listening to the game. You a football fan, he asked as I settled into the back seat. I am, I replied. Can I keep the radio on then? Yeah, sure. We rode for a while. The Giants were ahead, 23 to 0, and it was the beginning of the second quarter. It's not so much fun, I ventured, when one team is so much ahead. It's really all over. No, it isn't, the driver replied. You never know. Everything changes. The big snowstorm of the week before had been cleared away and there was little traffic, so the drive was smooth. I asked him how it was to drive in the storm. It was hard, he replied. Were you here? No, I said, I live in California. Very smart, he said. <laughs> then he said, are you a palm reader? <laughs> I wasn't sure I'd heard right. Excuse me? Are you a palm reader, he said again, or an astrologer or a psychic? No, I asked, why did you ask? Do I look a certain way? No, he said, you look regular. But everyone in California is a little bit different in that way, you know what I mean? I thought for a while, I said, matter of fact, maybe I do have an unusual job. I'm a meditation teacher. Aha, I knew it, he laughed, congratulating himself by slapping the steering wheel. Then he said, what kind of meditation do you teach? It's learning to pay attention. I said, we practice paying attention all the time, not just at certain times. You don't need to be alone. You don't need to close your eyes. It's just, just calm, paying attention, like I'm depending on you right now to be paying attention while you're driving. <laughs> I'm always paying attention. He said, what's the name of your meditation? It's called mindfulness, I said. But does it have a tradition it's part of? It does, I said. It comes from Asia. The Buddha taught it. You a Buddhist? I am, I said. So am I, he said. You a monk? I said, no, I'm not. I said, who is your teacher? He said, he's a monk. He's got a long name. He has a center in my neighborhood. I go there every couple of months to hear him. He says some good things. Mostly I read books about Buddhism. I wrote some of them, I said. What's your name? Sylvia Borstein. Nope, never heard of you. <laughs> Here we are at Penn Station. I was getting money out of my wallet to pay my fare, and I heard the football score on the radio. The Giants' lead had increased. You think the game is pretty much over now, I asked. He turned to see if I was being playful. I was. He smiled. You never know, he said, exaggerating the never. Then he laughed. Everything changes. <laughs> I paid him, and as I got out, I said, seriously, I hope your practice thrives. He answered, seriously, I do too. Then he laughed again. Wait till I tell my wife this story. You never know. <laughs> Isn't that a cute story? I hadn't remembered it. I read it, I read it this week. I was rereading the book. I thought, that's a really good story. <laughs> but the truth is, the truth is, I, and I think that maybe you, you'll corroborate this for me now, that when I said before about the fundamental thing that uh, that I'm, I'm teaching these days is that legend, not legend, myth, not myth. The truth is that life is full of challenges. Um, uh, 
suffering is a result of struggling with things that we can't change that are beyond our control. Not only the traffic is stuck or they get a ticket, but you get breast cancer or your best friend gets a brain tumor or something is wrong with a, a birth when it happens or the job you hope for doesn't come through or it is and then it isn't what you hope for. That, 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 that It's endless cha challenges for everyone. It's complicated. But it doesn't mean that, that it's, it's horrible. It just means it's complicated. And the Buddha's insight was that it goes from complicated and difficult to agonizing when we struggle with what we can't change. It's very simple. Uh, it, it, it comes down actually to the, um, the, the um, trying to think of what's the name of that prayer, grant me the ability to, the serenity, the serenity prayer. To change what, the courage to change what I can change, the ability to accept what I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think 12 million Americans in, are in at least are in 12-step programs every day saying that particular prayer. It's not different from really rec get a grip. This is how things are, and they're not uh, they're not all sad or tragic, you know. Uh, often when we say our, our thoughts for people in the morning, we're thinking about this or that, we tend to think first of the people whose situations are difficult and, and, and painful. But, but also the people who got a job and the people who have this possibility because they get excited about it. And, we're, and we are vicariously pleased for anybody who gets a job. I was pleased for the people out getting to work in the street this morning that um, <laughs> I didn't expect, oh, look, the client, I'm going to be late. But these people have jobs. That uh, the, the get a grip comes from the, you could say, is an, as, as an abbreviated way of saying that uh, we're training the mind to think in the most expansive way possible so that it's able at all times to recognize this is the truth of this situation. Uh, what can I do and what can't I do? And how can I relax my mind and say in a not banal way, that's life, things happen. Uh, everybody's life is complicated. I almost brought you a piece of a CD to play for you because I was listening to it in, the, in, in my car the other day, but uh, when I, I, if, if you support in any, I support the San Francisco Opera, so every year, I don't support them single-handed, but I contribute to them. <laughs> but, and every year they send me the highlights of the next season. It's a great CD to have because it's the director of the opera talking about each of the operas coming up and then singing a little piece of it. So I was listening to the, uh, the next season, coming, uh, the, this season that's, that's now happening. Um, and uh, I actually, at one point, I started to laugh because, uh, what's his name, the, the, the head of the opera? Anyway, he's saying, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you about the Macropolis case. It's one of the operas that's happening. It's an opera, um, anyway, it's an opera that I haven't seen. But he said it's got a slightly complicated plot. And then he begins to tell the plot. And the plot is so complicated. He, it, begins, it begins with a certain ruler at a certain time 
has a person comes to his court who offers him a certain elixir that if you drink the elixir, you'll never die, because one of the plots always of literature from the beginning of literature has been how do you have eternal life? What's the elixir of life? Because the the central the central alarming existential question is we have a time limited. This is a time limited affair. So the elixir of life. His daughter drinks the elixir of life. And then this the story unfolds through many, many lifetimes. And at some point, and he's a completely in a straight voice. And then the next thing, I'm, and it's so outlandish and so improbable that I start to laugh while driving. You know, you, that I was thinking every time I say life is complicated, it's not that complicated. <laughs> and and I actually at some point I stopped listening because I couldn't follow it anymore. It was so complicated. <laughs> And I was going to bring it to play for you as a kind of a challenge that we could all listen to it and say if we could figure out what actually the plot of the Metropolis case is. But then I decided I, it doesn't have grooves, so I couldn't, I couldn't set it up to play at the right time. But then I thought to myself, everybody's life in its own way is complicated. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. I once studied, a long time ago, uh, uh, must have been in the early 1970s. There was um, people were doing a practice called um, Progoff journal keeping. Anybody did that here, or just me? Ah. it was very interesting, wasn't it? That, that, uh, Ira Progoff was a Jungian analyst in New York, uh, and he he uh, his method of journal keeping was a kind of organized journal where you got, you got a, a, um, a loose leaf with like 12 or 18 different uh, dividers that could look at your life through 12 or 18, depending, I don't remember which one it was, perspectives. You could write about your life chronologically. You could write about it uh, this way. You could write about it that way. And it was his sense that if you looked at your life in enough through enough perspectives, you would have such a um, uh, such a wisdom about it would develop that you could live in it easily. And the metaphor that I remember he used was um, the I I, I, I I still think it's good. He said it was a metaphor of a sandbox. He said if you uh, see children playing in a sandbox. If it's been raining or there's been a lot of dew or and the sand is moist, it gets lumpy and it's not fun to play in the sandbox. So if the sand dries out or if you break it up, then you can pick up scoops of sand and it will run through your fingers easily. He said that's the same with your life. He said we live our lives in such a, an impactful, rushed way that lots of our experience is lumpy. We haven't broken it up. And when the mind encounters it in memory, it's encoded in there. And the places where it gets stuck because it hasn't quite come to grips with this or it can't face that or it can't face that or it can't face that. And he said, really, by looking at your life in this really quite um, structured way, you'd find all the places where the mind got caught. And then you, if you worked with them, you could take them apart. You could untie the knots in them just by looking at them. And just in this moment that I'm telling you this now, I am appreciating it more than I ever did, even 
even the fact, and even including the fact that for some period of a couple of years, I taught for him. They, they deputized people to go out and teach. And I used to travel with a, a friend of mine. We'd teach together, and we'd go and teach in, in various cities. It was very exciting. It was a weekend retreat. And now I just moved to another kind of teaching retreats where people don't use a writing down in a structured way, but still sitting quietly. I've, and I'm just making the connection now as I said, People come on retreat, they sit quietly, and the lumps in their mind that they uh, haven't quite broken up come up to the surface. Uh, I, in the beginning, I used to think I'm just sitting quietly in retreat and finally get a little bit of composure, a little bit of concentration, begin to feel good. And all of a sudden, zappo, there's something from my past that, where did that come from? And I would think, just when I'm, not, just when I'm sitting comfortably, What's this about? And it's about just when I'm sitting comfortably. I really think that the mind tends in the direction of healing itself and making itself transparent and not, and not sticky so that its life can flow through it with ease. And when, when it, it's not, it's, I used to say, the lumps in my life are lurking in there. Well, lurking has a kind of a nefarious kind of a feeling about like lurking, like it's ill-spirited. But I think it's waiting, and I actually, I am actually quite proud of my mind for waiting not to trouble me when I'm busy with my life, with the stuff that I haven't been able to work out yet, it, because it would be very distracting in the middle of trying to carry on my life to have the things that are difficult for me just present themselves and say, okay, now you have a little time to grieve, you have a little time to feel terrific remorse. No, not always. So it waits for my mind to be quiet. And I'm, for me to be in a safe place, and it says, here, you want to think about this for a while? Because if I think about it, and this is just actually now becoming clear to me a little bit more in both cases, both with the journal and with sitting, that always the truth for me, if I, if I sit with something and I don't flinch and I'm just able to be with it, not, uh, not feeling the feelings. Sometimes people think when we, they hear meditation instructions, Troublesome thoughts come up, or troublesome feelings surface, and you go back to your breath and for your metta. Not, not always. You have enough, enough steadiness from the breath and the metta. You sit with the feelings, and feelings that you couldn't countenance and you couldn't be with a long time ago, you now can. And you stay with them, and you're not afraid of them. Then they, there's some of, the, um, some of the toxin in them some of the fearfulness in them goes away because what we're afraid of, I think this was why, actually, um, that's the name of that, of, of Trungpa's book, Smiling, Smiling at Fear. Anybody went to hear Pema last weekend? Was she great? Was it wonderful? Yeah. Did she talk about smiling at smile? That was the name that's of That's an alien, smiling at fear. Yeah, smile at fear. I read the book, and uh, there was I was touched with the the returning and returning and returning to. Uh, it's not about ducking any part of your life. It's not about cooling out your mind so it just goes beyond you. It's about making your mind steady enough to be able to say, "Okay, this too, and this too, and this too." And it reminds me, as I tell it to you of the, the, again, either the metaphorical, who knows, real, not real, 
the story of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment. Presumably sat down, composed his mind, and said, I'm not getting up until I really truly understand. And uh, in the story, uh, the forces of Mara, which are all of the distracting, upsetting, fearful thoughts, stormed into his mind, uh, intending, uh, if, you, if you read the story, I, maybe I'll remember to bring it next week. If you read the story, it's wonderful as a myth. You know, as soon as he sat down, Mara, in person, in, in Mara becomes a, a person or a kind of personage, a demon god in these stories. Mara, wherever Mara is, realizes, uh-oh, the Buddha is about to have realization. Let me go break that up for him and comes storming in. And in the, in, the, in the illustrations of that, you see Mara storming in on a, on, a, on, a, on a horse, I think, with armies and spears and arrows. And um, the text said, the texts say, the Buddha said, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I love that line. I think that's, a, that it, it, you know, Mara or no Mara, that, that to be able to say, uh, I'm not afraid, is probably the best thing, I think. Or I have enough, or I don't need anything else, and I'm not afraid. Those are a few of the best things. To say, if you could really actually be in a place where you could say, "I have everything I need, and I'm not afraid," be like the the. I keep I keep making this little list of things that it would be good to have. As uh, you're supposed to have a final exit phrase with your last breath. <laughs> I'm not I'm not planning. I mean, who knows? You know, you never know. But thank you would be a good one. Um, oh, I, I keep quoting the. <clears throat> I think I, I I think I know who said this, but um, I'm not sure. So, but a, a woman Zen teacher who died contemporaneously of our times, who said, um, "Thank you very much. I have no complaints." Uh, that's a good way to exit. Uh, it's also a very good way to live. And extremely good. That's what I keep thinking about when I think about that. So I think what I wanted to talk about this morning, and I guess I did, was you never know. And when the mind is when the mind is clear enough, it says that things are like this. They keep changing. That uh, the, if you if you read as a, any really typical Buddhist text, uh, Brian Haycox is not so typical, but uh, he makes the same points over and over again. Things keep changing. Everything is related to something else. Everything this causes this causes that causes that. And if you struggle with what you can't change, you suffer. That's the whole thing. Those are the three characteristics of experience. The Buddha said, if you see that then you'll be really freed from the habit of, of insisting. It's the habit of imperative in the mind. So sometimes it's translated as desire. The first noble truth of life is challenging, difficult, because it's changing. And the second is suffering, is the imperative in the mind that things be different. And the third is peace is possible. 
And the fourth is the path to peace, the, the practice path, the Eightfold Path. When you think about it, a lot of um, a lot of discussion about Buddhisms. You know, uh, when, if anybody starts a sentence with the words "Buddhists believe," you know, from there on that the sentence is going to be wrong, because uh, which Buddhists? Uh, uh, are the Tibetan Buddhists, or the Zen Buddhists, or the Theravada Buddhists, or the? Uh, the the uh, Thai forest lineage Buddhists or the uh, American Buddhists or uh, uh, but you know what they all actually converge around everyone has as a core of their teaching the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path nobody says this is not the core of it that there's a path and that the the, the it's a path to training the mind to Training the mind to wisdom so that peace arises. It's so, it's, so, it's so different to say, not training the mind to stay peaceful, but training the mind to stay wise so that peace will be uh, sustained. I haven't said that before this last minute. I like that. I said that better than I have before. No, it's, seriously, it's a difference because try, training the mind to be, pe to be peaceful, you could just absolutely... Make yourself um, so concentrated that your mind wouldn't be rufflable, but neither would you be alive or responsive, or uh, uh, you could be indifferent. There's a there's a way of of mistaking that kind of steadiness for uh, equanimity, but I think it's indifference. You know, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Mind is unshakable. But but that everything matters, and that uh, everything that I do matters, that you do matters, because everything causes something. And Buddhism is a very is very. Uh, I, again, I'm just about to say Buddhism is the part of Buddhism that I know about. Certainly, the Theravada traditions very strong on uh, every, and the others probably as well, but I can't speak for them, very strong on every, since every action produces uh, a response, everything we do or don't do makes a difference in the world. And so, and since life is inevitably challenging for everyone, when we realize it, when, the, when that wisdom arises, our own hearts melt and we become kinder. What did I read in the very beginning that he said, that Saul Bellow said, that was a very good line, what comes up, not wrong book, social conscience and goodwill. Kindness. kindness, social conscience and kindness is good for us as well as everybody else. The social conscience part means I remember I'm in a world with other people. And if I remember I'm in a world with other people and I, and I get it, everything, you know. That it's, uh, we, we need to finish, but next week I, I, there are some more things to say about this. So I'd like you to think uh, as, as kind of a homework if you want to. Did you, anybody ever take seriously...
the homework of the first day. Everybody's got one of these, right? Maybe, because next week is the last week that we'll be on these papers until maybe sometime next year. Maybe see if you can make a make some charts and and uh, uh, there's a way in which I can see morality. Generosity is a gift of time, of effort, of interest, of money, of things. I can see morality is the gift of making people feel safe. Renunciation is the gift of giving yourself the ease of. Uh, uh, not having uh, cravings. So you can see all of them are forms of gifts. I'd like you to start with any one of the, or all of the other ones, and say, okay, uh, patience. How is patience, how is uh, generosity a form of patience? How is truthfulness a form of patience? So, because I actually think that you can look into this like a geodesic, um, what do you call those little... Not a Rubik's, not a geodesic, you know, but not a dome, a geodesic ball, you know. You know, when you can look in it and see, you can look in any end. That's probably the whole long word, it has nothing to do with geodesic. But you can look in any end and see the same kinds of things. See if you can see the same lessons as permutations, see them all as permutations one of another. You don't have to do every single one, because that will give you a hundred and... That will give you how many permutations of 10? Huh? Is it is factorial 10? How many permutations of 10 things can you do? 100? Or factorial 10, you think? Anyway, next, by next week, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Let's sit for a minute. I, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, I, I need to run out because I have an appointment at 11.30. So if you had a question you were really eager to ask me, email Spirit Rock and they'll send it to me because I, I need to make this an easy, a fast exit today. Next week as well, we're going to have to end 10 minutes early next week. So come early and we'll sit fast, okay? <laughs> and we'll pray hard. And I'm glad you liked Brian Kaycock's book. I thought it was great. Actually, homework. During the week, bring, notice one experience that happens to you, like the woman in the gym or the person in the dry cleaning. Notice an experience in your life that you say, aha, I just learned a piece of Buddha Dharma right here, okay? All right? It's all over the place. There isn't anything where it isn't there. So write yours down on a little paper, okay? All beings, wherever they are, making their way through this life, may they do it with friends and support and encouragement. Enough of the necessities of life to make them comfortable. And may they share it with everyone else so we have a world of kindness and social conscience. <laughs> I lost the bell somewhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.